that's Barnes. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege, this honor of gathering his family. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for revealing to us in Holy Scripture that our Lord's peace has been given to each one of us that we might enjoy it in time by your grace. Father, thank you for said grace and thank you for your patience as you bestow it on us, as you sanctify us, make us holy so we might bring glory to you. Father, what a privilege this is. May we never become familiar with it, but rather receive it in love, for that is your good intention. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning from the congregation, and we pray also for those still lost in this world. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We just ask for blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness, Part 5. Uh, wonderful series started. Don't know when it's going to end, but uh, uh, really just a wonderful way of tying together the last couple of months of lessons. Uh, the Spirit began on Thursday by asking us to think about two key parts of the message title, which is stolen, if you would, from Hebrews 12:11, as most of you know by now the peaceful fruit of righteousness, two key parts of that phrase, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We, we went into that in greater detail on Thursday, but this morning we'll look at it this way. Two aspects of Hebrews 12, verse 11. The first being, being right before God produces good fruit, fruit of righteousness. In other words, uh, the fruit is of something. That's what we uh, deduce from the language, fruit of righteousness. So being right before God produces good fruit. And secondly, the word peaceful, uh, for lack of a better term, is a big adjective. It's a big word. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And those are the two things that uh, we started off with on Thursday as well as uh, this morning, of course. And one of the principles that the Spirit gave us was that not all adjectives are created equal. Not all adjectives, and adjectives are just things that, words that just describe nouns, of course, uh, and this noun in, in view is the fruit uh, of righteousness. And so not all adjectives are created equal. A good example of this might be to say that I drove a vehicle here this morning uh, with low tire pressure. That's not true, but maybe I did. Uh, I drove a vehicle here this morning with low tire pressure. You might say, um, that doesn't give me much to go on. I still don't understand, you know, anything about the vehicle you drove. I know that it probably has four wheels, probably. Um, doesn't have to even. However, if I told you I drove a black Jeep 4x4, you'd have a much better picture of what I mean. Here's the point. Low, the word low that describes tire pressure is no less an adjective than 4x4, four four, let's say, that describes the frame of the Jeep. 
yet most of you will agree that the latter adjective is a much bigger one in the sense that it tells you a lot more about the vehicle I drove here today. It gives you a lot more information, if you would, about what I drove here today. Now, getting back to the adjective in the phrase, the peaceful, peaceful being the adjective, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as it describes the word fruit, the adjective peaceful is a really big word. It's not just fruit of righteousness, it's peaceful, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so um, the Spirit had us going down this sort of avenue on Thursday evening, and I need you to concentrate again this morning as an exercise in investigating what the Spirit's trying to say to us here along these lines, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We considered the following, the essence of God. We considered the essence of God, and here are four bullets against what we would call the essence of God. God is love, so says Holy Scripture, 1 John 4.16. God is manifest justice and righteousness, Psalm 89.14. God is Jesus Christ, John 10.30, and God is eternal life. These are all facts about God. Um, and what we learned is that peaceful is an adjective that describes everything on the board. Peaceful is an adjective that describes, it sort of envelops. Peaceful is a really big word. It envelops everything you see on the board. While our main verse, Hebrews 12, 11, uses peaceful to describe the fruit of righteousness, we know from Holy Scripture that peaceful can be used to describe the very essence of God. Are we to suggest that God is not at peace? Of course not. He's always at peace. And so when we look at his essence, we have to understand that every part of his essence is intrinsically bound to this idea that he's at peace. And when he gives himself, when he gives us his son, we receive all of him. We receive love, we receive uh, his justice, righteousness, Christ himself, and eternal Christ himself, and eternal life, and peace as well. And so these things are bound together. That's what the Spirit's trying to say. Don't just think of peace as a function of one aspect of your life, or as a function of just doing this particular fruit or just that fruit. Peace is sort of transcendent. And so again, we know from Holy Scripture that peaceful can be used to describe the very essence of God, not just the righteousness that he bestows on his children. And consider this also as we're thinking about it. For him to have something to give, for God to have something to give, he must first possess it himself, which he surely does. So for him to give us said peace, God must have it himself, must possess it. The infinite essence of God demands, then, that we consider peace as intrinsic to his person. It's who he is. He's peaceful. He has peace, then, to give to us, since all good things are from heaven. And so, the infinite essence of God demands that we consider peace as intrinsic to his person. Remember, God is never fractured. We even though theologically, and you, you know, you get theologians, and this is why it's, it's not dangerous, but you have to be careful. When you talk about the essence of God, some people, oh, well, there are five aspects. To, uh, really? 
oh, there are 10. Oh, there are 15. And everybody's trying to one-up each other, and it's like, stop it. No, the essence of God, he's never fractured. Even in his discipline, love is always there. Even in his discipline, he's always at peace. Even in his discipline, he's trying to impart the end goal, which is peace. That's where we get that phrase, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. After you've been trained by something as, as seemingly harsh as discipline, you receive peace. And so God does everything perfectly and everything in peace because he is never fractured. So when we say we have one part of him, we must accept all of him. When we say we have one part of God, we must accept all of him. And that's really the, the viewpoint that the Spirit's trying to get us to take. It's so important to elevate our thinking, big picture thinking, to understand the viewpoint of God on something as fundamental as peace. Because the world's going to sell you something else. Remember that. There's always a contention. There's always a counterfeit. There's always a sales pitch from the world. Oh, if you do this, you'll find peace. If you just have this relationship, you'll have peace. If you just do that, you'll have peace. So the world's constantly trying to dissuade us, if you would, from thinking this way. So nonetheless, God is not fractured, never fractured. So if we have part of him, we must accept all of him. The Apostle John spoke of our abiding in the love of God. And one of the key benefits of having this privilege, I would think it's obvious, is peace. Go to 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. One of the key benefits of having this privilege of abiding in the love of God is having His peace. Remember, it's His peace to give after all. Jesus Christ, who is God, said, My peace I give to you. which makes so much sense. 1 John 4.16 We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. He's intrinsically love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, matured, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And so there's a whole element of peace uh, up here on the board on the idea of peaceful fruit. Our access to divine peace is not a function of fruit, strictly speaking, but rather a function of being in Christ, in God, in the sphere of peace itself. And that's what the Spirit's trying to say here. Don't just think of uh, peace as coming on the coattails of specific fruit. Peace is part of the essence of God. Uh, and so when we think about peace, we have to think transcendently. We have to think of it in the sphere of the essence of God Himself. Peace is a transcendent estate of being, of living, of abiding experientially. When we receive Christ in us, we were given access to his peace. That was a promise he gave us in John 14, 27. My peace I give to you. And just another way to look at it up here on the board, peace is the fruit of being righteous. Peace is the fruit of being 
righteous. In other words, when you're oriented to God, when you're right before God, both, both positionally and experientially, there are aspects of peace in view. Peace is the, view, is the fruit of being righteous. More specifically, in Hebrews 12, 11, as we'll read again shortly, the writer isn't describing specific fruit, only that the result of divine discipline produces the fruit of righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, to be fair to the writer's expression, we must say that fruit is undefined and therefore representative of any and all fruit. The writer doesn't say it's this fruit or that fruit. He just says the peaceful fruit of righteousness after you've been disciplined. And so it means to be right before God. But there are, there are infinite ways, strictly speaking, uh, that you're right before God. I mean, you are right to come here. You are right to be motivated to come here this morning. You are right to be listening to what the Spirit's trying to say to you this morning. You are right to say this before class. You are right to think that before class. Whatever it was that you were doing right, there's all kinds of righteous things that you uh, can orient to God with, if, in other words, and there's fruit in that. So to be fair, when we talk, when we talk about the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12:11, when he says the peaceful fruit of righteousness, there's no defined fruit in view. He just says the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And therefore, we might insert uh, any kind of fruit any, or all kind of fruit in that statement that's good. So the implication is very broad in the sense that we may rightly insert any kind of fruit into the generic placeholder and realize that peace would describe it. If it's fruit of righteousness, then there's peace with it. That's, what, that's the net net. If it's fruit of righteousness, not just fruit, could be counterfeit fruit, could be bad fruit. If it's fruit of righteousness, then peace is part of it. That's what he's saying. And you choose the fruit. Because it's of righteousness, because it's oriented to God, it's in, uh, it's in alignment with God's desire in your life, then there's fruit. And therefore, if there's that fruit, because it's good fruit, there's peace that comes with it. And so that opens up a whole floodgate of thinking, critical thinking, as students of the Word of God, as disciples. So I hope that makes sense, uh, and I hope you've been taking these lessons. Obviously, the Spirit's been taking His time. This is part five already, and we're not done. So I hope you've been taking these lessons and taking your own time, going home, investigating Scripture on your own, uh, dwelling in, on these things, praying about uh, what the Spirit's been saying from the pulpit. So I hope it makes sense. And if it does, then you know how big peace is in God's plan for his children. It's a big word. It's not just a little thing. Peace is a big word. To cut to the chase, we can say that peace is a primary fruit of why God sanctifies us. In other words, that's the end goal. Think of ultimate sanctification. What's going to be more peaceful than heaven. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. What's more peaceful than that? Completely enveloped in worshiping the Holy God. Being side by side with Jesus Christ. Finally. What's going to be more peaceful than that? So peace is a big 
word. Again, we can say that peace is a primary fruit of why God sanctifies us. We ultimately end up the way Paul was, at peace no matter what. Go to Philippians 4.11. Ultimately, as God sanctifies us, this is where we want to be. This is the direction that we're heading in. We want to end up like Paul, Philippians 4.11. And I would, I would, I would say um, with more emphasis, especially in America, especially in America, does this passage make more sense? Is all the more critical because of the delusions in our society about things like money and prestige and reputation and all these things that seem to capture people and lead people away in shackles. Philippians 4.11, not that I speak from want, this is Paul, not that I speak from want, who was sanctified by the grace of God, who had peace, and this is what he's describing. He's saying, look at the peace I have. He says, not that I speak from one, for I've, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Can we say that about our own lives? Are we, have we learned to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in? I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. The secret is in placing your trust in Christ. That's where you find peace. Put it in man, you're doomed. Put it in yourself, you're doubly doomed. Put it in Christ, you're delivered. You have peace. If only we would listen. Because many of us are going to walk out, tomorrow's Monday, it's the start of a new work week, a start of a new week, right? Today's technically the start, but whatever. You know what I mean? You're going to go out tomorrow, and everything's going to spin up again. And you're going to put all your faith and all, and all your eggs in the wrong basket. And because you do that, as soon as you do it, your peace goes flying out the window. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Every single time. Then why don't we stop it? What happened to my last, my uh, slides? Did I do that or did you do that? Okay. Why don't we do it then? That's the point. If we know that our peace is going to go flying out the window, why don't we just have faith? Why don't we just stick with God? Why don't we put our faith our trust in the only person, the only one who truly could say, I, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, that's the warning, but I give mine to you. Why don't we just trust him? So, excuse me, that's between you and him. I know why I fail in that area, but I don't know why you fail. I mean, I, generically I know. But you have different things that are tugging you away from such things in your life. You have different challenges. Could be your kids, could be your parents, could be your co-workers, could be a job itself, could be, I don't know, a, a habit, a, a, an addiction. It could be a lot of things. I don't know. Whatever the, the issue is with you, that's between you and the Lord. But this is what Paul said. 
This is what he said. He said, I have peace because I've learned to go with and without. It doesn't matter what changes in my life, whatever circumstances. That's what he said in verse 11. It doesn't matter. Whatever circumstance I find myself, I'm good. I'm at peace. Why? Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, I put all my eggs in his basket. I cast all my anxiety on him. And that's good counsel for all of us on a Sunday morning, and every day really. Was Paul necessarily speaking about the same thing, getting back to Scripture itself, as the writer of Hebrews 12.11 in context? Not really. Not necessarily. Because remember, um, the writer in uh, Hebrews was describing something that comes on the coattails, if you would, or after, he, in context, being disciplined. But yet, Paul describes a peaceful contentment as a fruit of righteousness. And that, of course, echoes of the writer of Hebrews. He says, I'm at peace because I'm right with God. And when I'm right with God, I have peace. That's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's the exact same thing that the writer of Hebrews was talking about, even though the contexts are different. And so it makes perfect sense because, as the Spirit's been pointing out, peace transcends all fruit up here in the board. As long as something is righteous, there is peace. As long as something is righteous, there is peace. Have you ever, uh, here's a, I don't suggest you do this, but you could probably draw on experience. Um, as long as something is righteous, there is peace. Um, go do something that you know is wrong. Don't do it. But you know what I'm saying. Look back. Go do something you know is wrong. The Spirit's going to haunt you. Not only while you're doing it, but afterwards. He's going to haunt you until you repent. Until you say, oh, yeah, all right. And because He's haunting you, you don't have peace, do you? You're like, man, I can't sleep at night. You're not supposed to sleep at night. You're not supposed to sleep like a baby when you're living in sin with an unrepentant heart. He's going to haunt you. Remember what he gave you? Repentance, all those lessons on repentance. One of the gifts given at salvation was repentance itself, to be given a heart that is forever repentant. And a good conscience that's going to say, hey, listen, no, no. This isn't flying. And so it's a surefire way. I don't suggest you do it, but I don't know. You're going to do it anyways, right? So you're like, oh, don't worry about me, man. Probably do it this afternoon. Huh. But you get the point. As long as something is right, though, or it's better to suffer for doing what is right. As long as something is right, even if you suffer, you will have peace. To net out how we receive this peace, uh, up here on the board, where is it? Huh. There we go. To net out how we receive this peace, up here on the board, the peaceful fruit, the gateway to actually experiencing said peace is in obedience also known as being righteous through the power of the Spirit and His Word. 
You say, well, I want, to be, I want that peace. Well, then obey. But I don't want to. Well, that's what we call sin. And there goes your peace. That was the little experiment I just described. You want to lose your peace? Live in sin. Some of you are doing it right now. Living in sin. And in certain parts of your life, the peace is gone, bye-bye. And it won't recover until you rectify that situation before the holy God of the universe. So you stop denying that you're disjointed from the holy God, the one who is only able to give you peace. You might say, but I get peace from the world in my sin. Good luck with that. It's a counterfeit. Jesus Christ said, not as the world do I give you. I'll give you my peace, but here's the deal, the point on the board. You've got to obey. Our free will decides on experiential reception of God's peace, in other words. When we obey God, we receive it. Want to test the waters? See if God really isn't mocked? See if he says what a man reaps, therefore he will sow? Want to test the waters? Try it out. See how long you have peace if you decide knowingly to disobey God. And it, oh, and by the way, if that never comes, you have a much bigger problem. Just saying. It has to do with salvation itself. If you can live in complete sin without any conscience, without any problem with it, you have a bigger problem. But we've covered that. That's a dead horse. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. In other words, obey. The one who obeys is blessed. Is peace a blessing? You bet. The one who obeys finds peace. So, up here on the board, this is what uh, we were looking at uh, earlier, the essence of God, and that Peace describes all of this, that he's love, that he's manifest uh, justice and righteousness. He's Jesus Christ. He's also eternal life. So as we read each of these verses, uh, find, find a way to think about peace. Uh, and if you find peace in hearing the word of Christ, a la Romans 10, 17. So I'm going to just read off the verses. I'm going to give you in the Amplified Classic just to see it in a different way. Um, and as I'm reading these uh, verses to you, uh, think if you receive a certain kind of peace when the Word washes over you. When the Word washes over you. I've taught you this before. That's the value of the Word. When you come to class, you're washed by the Word. When you read your Bible, you're washed by the Word. When you do nothing, you're filthy. And when you're filthy and you stink, you're not very comfortable. And things like peace, well, they're kind of fleeting because you're a filthy animal. <laughs> Happy Sunday. Right? Scrub-a-dub-dub. <laughs> this is what the Spirit's saying. He's saying it's this simple. You want to be clean? You want to find peace? Take the Word of God. Let the Word of God wash over you. So as I'm reading, let the Word of God wash over you. First John 4, 16. In the Amplified Classic, and we know, understand, recognize, are conscious of, by observation and by experience, and believe, adhere to, and put faith in, and rely on the love God cherishes for us. God is love. 
And he who dwells and continues in love dwells and continues in God. And God dwells and continues in him. Again, think of peace. Second, God is justice and righteousness manifests. Uh, Psalm 89.14 in the Amplified Classic up here on the board. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and loving kindness and truth go before your face. I don't know about you, but I have a certain amount of peace when I read that. Knowing that my God is perfectly just and righteous. Third, God is Jesus Christ. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And then, of course, God is eternal life. 1 John 5.20 in the Amplified Classic. And we have seen and known positively that the Son of God has actually come to this world and has given us understanding and insight progressively to perceive, recognize, and come to know better and more clearly Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This man is the true God in life eternal. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it brings me peace. And that's what the Spirit's been saying. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's not, peace is not just bound to the righteousness that we receive from God. It's part of the essence of God. It's part of who He is. The essence of God is love manifests in justice and righteousness. Jesus Christ, eternal life, up here on the board. What the Spirit's doing is elevating your perspective to the divine level, at least to whatever degree that is possible. And he's pulling you out of the doldrums of humanity, right? Could turn on the television, the television's going to tell you this is how you're going to find peace. Take this pill, you'll lose 50 pounds. When you lose 50 pounds, you'll find peace. Or let me jab this steel pipe into your belly and suck out some of that fat. Then you'll have peace. Because then people will stop picking on you. Because it really matters what other people think about you. Isn't that what's implied? Don't don't you understand? This is how the world gets you. What have I taught you time and time again? Always challenge the presuppositions. Always challenge the presuppositions. Go deeper. What is the world trying to sell you when it says your nose is too big, you need a nose job? That you should care about what the world... Because if you care about the world, then they've got you on track to pursue its form of peace. Get the nose job and you can find peace because everybody will stop picking on you because you're a big honker. Sorry, DJ. Right? Everybody will stop picking on you. (laughs) Do you know what I'm getting? You always have to go one step back and say, wait a minute here, old slick one, old kingdom of darkness. What are you implying here? That God, that, that I'm not perfectly made, that I'm not wonderfully made, that God screwed up when it came to me. I was telling the uh, DJ and my mom before class, I actually saw a, a man of the cloth say, in support of transgenderism, God made a mistake. Therefore, we can correct it. Whoa. Wait a minute. Do you understand how far-reaching the implications of that are? Any idea? if you accept that as something that's viable, I'm not going to get into it because I'll keep going. 
But always check the implications of what's actually being stated. Always check the implications. And we're getting, we're getting people really young in this country. Oh, little Johnny can't sit still. Give him a pill. Little Johnny's just rambunctious. What have happened to the word rambunctious? Mrs. Lane, never forget a second grade. I was one. Right? Oh, and she was like 90. Oh, Mr. little Mr. Collins, you're so rambunctious. Because I'm running down the hallway at Dighton Elementary School. Wow! Right? I'm like, what does that mean? She's like, go home and find out. I'm like, crap, I got to open up a dictionary? I ain't got time for this. Ain't nobody got time for that. Right? Whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to, you know, little, little Eddie's just got too much energy. He's a little boy. Because that's what little boys do. We run around. We want to run around trees for no apparent reason. <laughs> right? One more story. My golf coach at a, in college, uh, he was a gym teacher for years in elementary school. He said, listen, took me a while, but I learned the secret. Right, what's the secret, coach? He said, this is what I would do at the beginning of every gym class. Take a bunch of those. Remember those red rubber balls? Remember those things? They would like bounce like from here to like the treetops. He would go, I'd throw a bunch of them in the gym. And I'd go, go. And they would go wild for five minutes. And get all the energy out. He goes, then they were teachable. But they had to run around like morons. Kicking stuff off of walls, just go doing cartwheels, flips, whatever it would take. He goes, then I had them. He goes, but if I didn't do that, I couldn't control them. Just, I mean, whatever happened to just having, you know, what's wrong with a little kid having any, You know what the problem is? We're trying to teach them calculus by the time they're out of elementary school. It's disgusting. It's horrible. And what's the implication is a point to this. The implication is, little Johnny, you're not good enough because you can't do calculus by the time you're out of the fifth grade. There's something wrong with you, little Johnny. You've got too much energy, you see. You can't sit still. You know what? Little Johnny's not supposed to sit still because that's how God designed the kid. I'm not going to say some of you, the parents, don't go to school and not stop fighting with the teachers. God didn't design my kid to behave. No, your kid's supposed to behave. I'm just making a point. He's rambunctious. <laughs> yeah, everybody's kids are going wild, though. You know what I'm saying? What, this, is the, this is the sales pitch that's being ingrained at a very early age. There's something wrong with you. There's always something wrong. There's nothing wrong with us. That's the point. There's something wrong with you. Will you accept my problem statement? Don't ask me about it later. There's something Okay, okay, there's something wrong with me. Okay, if you want to find peace now that everybody's looking at you because now you've been labeled something wrong with you, now you've got to find my way to peace. Now you're on my track. I've got you hooked, line, and sinker. Now we've got to back up a little bit. This, this world that we live in is just filled with a bunch of liars. And it's all to undermine the holy God of the universe, our creator. Think about those kinds of things because that's what the Spirit's trying to teach us. Big picture perspective. What's really going on? What are the lies that we've bought from the world? Anyways, the point on the board, what the Spirit's doing is elevating your perspective to the divine level, at least to whatever degree is possible. And again, we're coming out of the doldrums, if you would, of a peace that's uh, being sold to us. 
from the kingdom of darkness. So the question is why? Why is he doing this? Because earthly righteousness has no guarantee of peace. Earthly righteousness, there's no guarantee of peace. And even if there were some peace, it is from the world, not from God. So let me give you some food for thought. We talked about this a little bit on Thursday. Earthly righteousness, no matter how earnestly it is practiced or even achieved, earthly righteousness has no part in God's peace. We believers receive His peace as a function of bearing fruit of righteousness. Again, earthly righteousness, no matter how earnestly it is practiced or even achieved, earthly righteousness has no part in God's peace. However, we believers receive His peace as a function of bearing fruit of righteousness. That means being right with God, not right with the world. So let's read Jesus' own words about this topic, just so you understand the principle and you don't think it's me trying to establish it. Go to Matthew 6, 1. Matthew 6, verse 1. See, one of, the, one of the bad fruits of buying the lies we were just talking about is now you feel like you have to prove yourself, don't you? If you buy the lie from the kingdom of darkness that you're not good enough, let's say, now you have to prove to the world that you are. So what do you start doing? What do you become? A braggart. Which, if you're a Christian, it makes you a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus was saying. So Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Yeah, no reward means no peace either. Go to uh, verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. You see, they're not interested in God. They want to be honored by men. Why? Because they're on that treadmill. They bought a lie. Once you buy that lie, now if there's, if there's only peace in getting approbation from other people, then you've got you to continue it through. And you stop becoming a hypocrite. You start doing things for the sake of being noticed or recognized. And in that, the idea is, the false idea is that in being recognized, you'll have peace. Finally, you've arrived Finally, you've made it. Remember when you were the the little rambunctious Eddie? Well, now you're a 35-year-old CEO. You've finally made it. I did? Geez, I feel worse now. Yeah. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. As good as it gets. Look at verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. How about verse 16? Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. One of, the things that, one of the things that speaks to me personally, and probably you as well, uh, in terms of the grace of God, is when I know someone is going through something hor- horrible, and they don't complain. 
To me, that's an unbelievable testament of God's grace. But you see, that's not what a worldly person does. A worldly person says, I don't expect you to understand. I have ADHD. Nothing I can do can control myself. I'm just dealing with it, even as an adult. I have ADHD. Ask my mother. Ask my grandmother, who's still alive. But she's the only one who would take me overnight. Because I was rambunctious. <laughs> Whatever. Don't be moaning and groaning about your so-called shortcomings. Probably half of them aren't even real. Half of them are lies. They're not even shortcomings. You got lied to by the world, and now you're apologizing for something that God gave you as a gift. Anyways, whenever you do something, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. You know, go through something difficult. Oh, I'm going to... It's the cross that I bear. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Anybody who does like that, that's as good as it gets. You're going to get something from the world, but not from God. The word hypocrite appears every time in those final three verses that we read up here in the board. Hypocrisy, according to Jesus. Jesus had a distaste for hypocrisy, obviously. The Greek root of this word hypocrisy means to wear a mask as in a theater. Practicing righteousness for the approbation of others is like wearing a mask. It is disingenuous before God. God does not bless hypocrites. Man does. That's what we just read. You want to be blessed by the world? Be a hypocrite. Put on a mask. Up here on the board. Peace being a primary blessing from God is among the things that God withholds from hypocrites. I was thinking about that. And you should think about a day like this. Here we are, learning the truth, the unadulterated truth from the Word of God. The Spirit's probably working all kinds of things in your individual souls. It's it's magnificent. It's a miracle that He can do anything with any of us, right? Yet hypocrites are in the churches all across the world right now, wearing masks supposedly celebrating Jesus Christ, the Messiah, yet they are wearing masks, pretending. The reason is, oh, this is so, is because of one simple reason, disobedience. They're not looking, (laughs) they're not looking to obey. They're not looking to orient. They're not looking even to be Righteous and therefore bear fruit, which, unbeknownst to them, bears the fruit of peace. They don't want any of that because they're not interested in righteousness before God. They're like the hypocrites. They want righteousness before other men. That's why you'll see a lot of people going out of these hypocritical churches dressed to the nines. I didn't even wear a tie today, which is rare, but whatever. Oh, wow, the guy's behind the pulpit doesn't even have a tie on. Even I have a tie on. And I'm only an usher. I give out the elements. And I pass the basket 14 times. 
Those are, those are hypocrites. Who are you trying to be noticed by with your suit and tie? Do you really think it's about suit and tie? I mean, I wear it, you know, just because that's, because I look good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I got a bunch of ties and suits for a multitude of reasons. I figure I might as well wear them to church. Plus, it, it does, you know, whatever. I don't need to explain myself to you people. <laughs> why are they wearing masks in churches? Disobedience. That's why. They're disobedient. First to the gospel. We, as we've been learning, the gospel, the call, the gospel call is a command. Repent and believe. Those are both commands. They're disobedient to the gospel. And then if they, if they happen to be saved, they're disobedient to the truth that unravels after one is saved. About something as fundamental as hypocrisy. As the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, true believers in Christ abide in him, obey him, love him as a way of life. We don't do it perfect, so don't put yourself on a treadmill. But it's a way of life. Not just on church days, or holidays. Therefore, the recurring word of caution from the Spirit has been very simple up here on the board. Peace from obedience. If we want peace, we must obey God's commands. Obedience implies very practical lifestyle choices, not just mental assent to obedience. While we can't fake it till we make it, we can at least humble ourselves, learning humility through life itself. God gives faith, Romans 12, 3, that leads to obedience, that leads to peace. All right, let's read our primary passage now. Go to Hebrews 12, 1. Hebrews 12, 1. I love it, I love it, love it, love it, love it. I would hate it so much. He would never do this to us, but I would hate it so much if we didn't have something to obey. Because I'm convinced, obviously, obviously, I hope you are as well, that obedience really does lead to peaceful fruit of righteousness. That sometimes I, for me to reorient, to, for me to go from disobedience to obedience, I have to be disciplined. And that's a really good thing because it's from a loving God that really wants me to find peace, to have peace even in time. Because when I have peace in time, when you have peace in time, we bring glory to God. We show in the great theatron that His grace is sufficient. We show to the angels rubbernecking that all things are possible through Him and with Him. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. Amen? Oh, you guys are heathens. I was just setting you up. <laughs> the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I like to think true north. I got a compass. Just let me keep going north. Just, I just want to follow his voice. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing what is right 
Hebrews 12.4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you are striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. Up here on the board, on discipline, his discipline is only necessary because of the existence of disobedience. We would never be disciplined if we never disobeyed, in other words. The Lord disciplines those he loves. We just saw that because he wants them to enjoy his peace. That's why. He's trying to lead us to a peaceful existence even in time. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12.11 in the Amplified appear on the board. For the time being, no discipline brings joy, but seems sad and painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right standing with God in a lifestyle and attitude that seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. Paul wrote, whether I'm home absent from the Lord, uh, or home with him, I just want to be pleasing. Whatever the case may be, whatever my circumstances, I just want to be pleasing to the Lord. And that's that wonderful transcendent attitude. And, and the confidence that we have is that we know that when we arrive there, at least you know when it's a sanctification process, we have peace. That's you know 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of our faith. When we have the faith to put our trust in Jesus Christ, to lay aside the encumbrances that chase us down. You know, remember, sin's always trying to pounce on us. When we do that thing, we have the confidence knowing that we're going to have peace at the end of the tunnel. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was getting at. Don't faint when you get disciplined. Oh, it's me. Like some of us do. Oh, you don't understand. I don't know why I always do that voice. <laughs> it's, the, it's the queer voice. I guess that's what it is. In my head, I'm like, I'm being queer, right? So I've got to put on a queer voice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Can't be manly about it. Anyways. Here's what we've learned so far. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peace is a function of righteousness. I Hopefully that's implanted thoroughly in your souls at this point. Peace is a function of righteousness. Righteousness is a function of obedience of faith, both at salvation when it is imputed and experientially when it is imparted. Peace reigns in the heart and soul of God. That's why we looked at 
the essence of God. Peace is part of who he is. So here's where we ended on Thursday um, with this sort of open-ended question. Isn't peace a big picture emotion? And when I say emotion, it means something that we emote as a result. Isn't peace a big picture emotion? Isn't it something big? Yes, the answer is yes. As we've been contemplating as of late, peace is within the sphere of God's essence where other descriptions of him exist such as love, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., etc., etc. And they're all intrinsically bound. That's the point. Peace is one of many gifts given to those who obey God. For God imparts righteousness to their account, thus opening up the floodgates of grace. Now, this isn't a religious endeavor where we, you know, do this and always expect that. This sort of, you know, oh, well, where's God? I did, I was, I was righteous. Well, that right there says you weren't because your motivation was wrong. You know, again, you don't just run out and become religious and expect, you know, God to be your slave now. You know, this kind of a thing. Well, the Bible says if I do this, then I can just control God because then I can get all the goodie basket. If I show up at church every Sunday, then I get the goodie basket, right? That's not how it works because you're showing up with a bad heart, with a, with a manipulative, you know, heart, trying to put God on puppet strings. You are not the marionette. You're not the puppeteer here, right? So do not do that thing up here on the board. Simply stated, true religion isn't, isn't a formula. It's not. True religion isn't a formula, so do not do that thing to yourself. This is a transcendent reality we are investigating here in Holy Scripture. So please do not take the religious route and spoil it for yourselves. Up here on the board, back to business. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peace is a function of righteousness. Righteousness is a function of obedience, of faith, both at salvation when it is imputed and experientially when it is imparted. Peace reigns in the heart and soul of God. So we have to think of peace then as a grace gift. It's given to us. And according to the word of God, it is something that often comes in its greatest abundance when we lose the things in which we so highly esteem in this world. When we hack that lie that I was talking about earlier, the one with all the implications about how you're going to get peace. Do this, you'll get peace. Follow this law, you'll get peace. Be this way, find this person, this relationship, and you'll get peace. They're all lies. You have to sever yourself from all of it. That's why I was just listening to um, some of the real talks. And at the end of every real talk, if it's, a, if it's a male, I say, what do you advise you have for males? Almost without, I think it's true. I think every woman that I've interviewed so far, I think, said the same thing. What advice do you have for women? Get a relationship with Christ before you go running off and get married. Fall in love with the one husband who's never going to um, leave you, forsake you, who's never going to undermine you, who's always going to be there for you, who's perfect. Fall in love with that person, Jesus, first, before you run off. And I'm, I'm not, you know, if you, if you ran off and did these things, you were saved later, you know, get over yourself, right? I'm not talking, I'm saying this is advice from these women who have been there and done that and are saying, hey, listen, don't make the mistakes I made. Don't make these mistakes. 
And if you have daughters, if you, you know, this kind of a thing, teach them that. Fall in love with Jesus. And when you know, now you have a divine standard. Nobody can ever meet it, so don't do that to a man. Well, you're not like Jesus, so you stink. You know, well, come on. Can we lower the bar a little bit? <laughs> right? Don't do that to him. But the idea is that you actually understand what true love is. Which means you have to hack off all the lies. Young ladies have to hack off all those lies about some man on a, you know, a white steed that's going to come save them, swoop them up and save them like the old Spice guy. Nobody? <laughs> Throw them on the back of the horse and drive away. You don't drive a horse, do you? Right away. Those are all lies that have to be severed. So we have to lose things in which we so highly esteem in this world. This is what's meant by the famous words of Jesus. Go to Matthew 16, 24. Matthew 16, 24. So if we want to find peace, we have to sever certain ties that we have with the world. You know the thing that lies to us? And if you have a cell phone, and if you have internet access, and if you have a TV and a radio, you have a big problem because that's basically a sewer pipe spewing lies all day long. Listen to, I, listen to the most benign commercial on television of all. And somewhere hidden in there is you're not good enough. You mean I got to take this pill that gives me diarrhea, diarrhea and bleeding out my butt and, and polyps, potentially, hot murmurs, but you know what? I'll have nice complexion and no one will pick about me on my skin anymore. <laughs> I'm saying... Unbelievable. Those are the lies. That's just the commercials. Want to hear a good saying that I heard? This is really good. I never thought of it this way, and it, I, it changed the way I look at television. Television shows are nothing more than vehicles for commercials. It's not about the show, you see. That's what attracts you. It's about the commercials in between. That's where all the money's made, for starters, right? But that's also where the kingdom of darkness does so much damage. It's in the commercials, because every commercial is trying to sell you something. Kind of hard. They're not going to sell you anything unless they can first insert an insecurity. I learned that in industry, even in high tech. You want to get somebody to buy something? Scare them. <gasps> you don't do this on your net computer network. You're going to have viruses. Oh my God. And the CEO's like, oh, what do I sign? <laughs> right? Woohoo! So we know we got just the box, just the solution. You're like, oh, I need it, right? <laughs> Give me this. It's the same stuff. You know the guys in the old, like the Wizard of Oz carts, right, with the elixirs, the little bottles of like supposedly what do they call those um, potions? The potions, right? There's garbage, right? Some of it had cocaine in it. Oh, just saying. For a little while, they're like, ooh, I feel good. Coca-Cola. What do you think you got the name? Am I digressing? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm not loosed. This is all related. These are all the lie. You're laughing because it's uncomfortable, isn't it? You feel like shaking loose this stuff. You think of how silly we are that we voluntarily pay. Some of you are paying $200 for cable a month to be what? Gunned down? Anyway. 
Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus was supremely wise. Again, peace is a grace gift, and we receive it when we lose those things in which we so highly esteem in this world. And before I close, I want to read a poem by a woman named Annie J. Flint, whose mom died when she was just an infant. Oh, I'm going to start crying here. Phew. Whose mom died when she was just an infant, whose father gave her and her siblings up at age three, who suffered emotionally and physically with debilitating rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it got so bad that ultimately she was bedridden for the rest of her life. For like 15, the last like 15 years of her life, she didn't get out of bed, and so she had sores all over her body. Like, so she had a lot of things going on, didn't she? So she describes the kind of peace that is almost indescribable. Yet, through the God-given art of poetry, we have perspective that can at least approximate it in human terms. So this is called, He Giveth More Grace by Annie J. Flint. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the, end, uh, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not, that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That was the woman that I described to you who had obviously a lot more to complain about than most of you. You're all here. You got out of bed in the morning, right? I don't see any apparent sores on you. God loves us so much that he will use various methods to show us his stupidity grace. For someone like Annie Flint, she suffered at the hands of physical suffering, arguably the result of, who knows, probably inherent sin, not personal, we don't know. And what was the result? It didn't matter to her. What was the result? She savored God's grace. And she had peace, you see. For others who sin personally, God leads us to the same result. 
His grace and the peace that the Son of God has promised every sheep of His. One last point to make on this before we close. I love this about God. Our God is a God of results, not merely vapid thought. He said, I'm going to complete a good thing I started you at salvation. I'm going to show you what peace looks like. I'm going to give it to you freely, not as the world gives. And in doing so, I'm going to bring glory to myself. God is a God of results, not merely vapid thought. As in the case of discipline, the Bible tells us that He disciplines those He loves. Why? To lead us to grace. And as we just noted, peace is a function of said grace. Disobedience is a show of unrighteousness. Obedience, just the opposite. Therefore, to the obedient go the spoils of righteousness. For example, peace. All right, let's finish our passage, and I I promise to close. Look at Hebrews. You still in Hebrews 12? All right, go back there. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Again, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." Let me show you one more place in Holy Scripture where the concept of the peaceful fruit of righteousness exists for our instruction. Go to James 3.13 and I'll close. James 3.13. And this brings a lot of what the Spirit's been saying together about obedience leading to peace. Obedience. James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
That's the opposite of peace, you see. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this wonderful message to chew on. It is the very bread of life after all, Father. We're so grateful to you for your patience, for your loving kindness, for your love. And thank you for your peace, for imparting it to us experientially. Father, we just take the things we've learned here this morning. We pray that you give us the humility to institute them in our lifestyles and also that we have the courage and the tenacity to share them out there in a world that's accelerating away from your Son. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.